this morning we have uh, a special guest with us, uh, my new friend, um, <laughs> and I say that, Pastor Brian, because I often refer to the saints of old as my friends, so all my friends are basically dead, so um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah, so, uh, but we have uh, Pastor Brian Croft with us now. Brian is the former senior pastor of Auburndale Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. He was there for 17 years. The reason why that's significant is because we poached Pastor Jesse and Bethany from Auburndale. Um, Pastor Jesse was serving as an intern there uh, while Brian was there, and so uh, invested in Pastor Jesse amongst many other young men in ministry and couples in ministry. And uh, we have definitely benefited from Brian's ministry as uh, we've been blessed by uh, the Morgans. So uh, what Brian is doing is he has gone on to uh, serve as the senior fellow for the Mathena Center for Church Revitalization and as an adjunct professor, which is all at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. But he also runs a ministry called Practical Shepherding, which that's really his heart. His passion is to equip pastors to uh, faithfully serve and shepherd, especially uh, seeing that happen in the training of young pastors. Uh, Brian reminded us, he came to speak to our North Jersey pastors group on Friday night. It was a great encouragement to many churches who are represented there. But he reminded us then uh, that 42% of pastors have given real serious consideration to quitting full-time ministry within the last year. That's a a Barna research quote. Now, a lot of that is a function, uh, certainly of the pandemic. Not me. (laughs) Calm down. All right. We're okay. Uh, but, um, But no, the fact is that pastoral ministry is hard. And so uh, he has labored to work hard to uh, kind of create a ministry that is supportive of pastors. And to that end, uh, if you grabbed one of these uh, bookmarks coming in, or you can grab one on your way out, but it's, there's a sponsor, a pastor link here. And so if you want to get involved in helping just to foster good spiritual health for pastors and longevity in ministry, there's a way you can practically do that through um, Pastor Brian's uh, ministry, Practical Shepherding. So that's available to you. Um, Brian is married to his wife, Kara, and he's got four kids. Um, they're all, the youngest is 16. The rest are out of the house and, uh, they're, they're doing well, but we're really thrilled to have him with us. I'm especially excited to have him with us because of, uh, the passage that he's going to preach and his passion, uh, to communicate God's word to you. So please, would you welcome my new friend, Pastor Brian Croft. Good morning, everyone. It's a joy to be here. Uh, thank you, Pastor Ryan. I'm uh, grateful to have a new friend as well. <laughs> Has a new meaning for me now. <laughs> thank you. Uh, no, you've been uh, very hospitable. It's been a joy to be, be with you. And, and I've heard a lot about you and this church, wonderful things, uh, from the Morgans. And so it's finally nice to put a to put a f- faces uh, with all the wonderful things that I've heard. Uh, I, I miss the Morgans. So I'm glad you have them. Because I miss them. I had dinner with them last night and I was reminded of one of the things I miss is watching ki- the kids grow up, uh, getting to interact with them. So uh, I miss them, but if they have to be somewhere else, I'm glad they're here with you. So thank you for caring for them well. Uh, as I've stayed in touch with them, and they have spoken about the love and care that you have extended them. So thank you for the way you have, have loved them. And speaking of that, 
I have one aim this morning as we open the word together, and that is for you to know that regardless on who you are or where you come from or what you've done, if you are in Christ, you are loved. And you're loved more than you realize. You are undeniably loved by Jesus. Demonstrated even just a few moments ago when we were remembered that he actually laid down his life for us, out of love for us. So my hope is, is that you would be reminded today, if you are in Christ, that you are undeniably loved by the Father, by Jesus, by the Spirit. So if you take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. And before I read Romans, since we're jumping into the book of Romans... I want to just give a little bit of context as we jump into this book, this amazing book. As many of you will know, this letter that Paul writes to the Roman church, it's just a masterpiece to help us understand what the gospel is. Paul is, is making this argument, almost like a brilliant lawyer, to make the case that we are sinners and have been separated from God, and we cannot save ourselves, and that Jesus is that Messiah, that perfect lamb who was the perfect sacrifice and then died on the cross and rose from the dead to give us salvation, forgiveness, eternal life through faith in in him. And so the first seven chapters of the book of Romans is just a masterpiece of how Paul walks through these things to highlight our sin, our need for Jesus and how Jesus is the one and the only one who can save us from our sins. And then we come to Romans 8. And this is one of the most glorious chapters, I think, to truly understand what the love of God is towards sinners. So I want us to be able to look at this together. We're going to look at a middle portion of the passage. But before we do that, before I I read this passage, I want to give a little bit of just overview of the chapter of Romans 8. Because it ends at the end of 7, you might notice it, Get ends kind of dark in that, in that place, that we're unable to save ourselves in our sin. And yet, Romans 8 begins with, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then the end of chapter 8 ends with, and nothing, absolutely nothing, there's a big long list there, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Can we agree those are quite the bookends of a chapter that tell us how loved we are? And then the rest of Romans 8 is this amazing chapter that outlines those who are saved, those who are in Christ, forgiven, repent of sins, and by faith trust in Christ. We are now have this new identity with Christ. And so let me mention a couple of things in chapter 8 before we read the middle section. It says in verse 1, take your eyes there, we're going to run through just a little bit of the chapter. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Verse 9, it says the Spirit of God dwells in those in Christ. If you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Verse 14, we in Christ were adopted as sons and daughters of God. Verse 17, we are called fellow heirs with Christ. Do you realize what that means? That means the inheritance that only Jesus is worthy of, we get through him. 
But then after that, Paul reminds us that we are not in our eternal home yet. That there's pain and suffering and difficulty in this fallen world, as Pastor Ryan's already mentioned. So he gets into this idea that the world is not as it should be. We suffer in this world because of that. So then we get into verse 22 and 23, where it says, creation groans. It says, we groan. That's an interesting choice of word when it talks about groaning. It's talking about the pain and suffering of this world and, and what comes out of us oftentimes because of it. And that's what leads us to the verses I would like us to look at. So let's read together in verses 26 to 30, and I will read those for us. So Romans 8, starting in verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. Amen? Let's pray together and ask God's help. Lord, would you come in the power of your spirit and open our eyes and ears and our minds and our hearts to receive your word and to remind us, Lord, of how loved that we are by you and that that would give us hope today in whatever we are facing. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The reason I wanted to give that background to understand the love of God for us in Christ is because that is really important for us to understand these middle verses that talk about the pain and suffering of this world and when we endure it. So I'm referring to this as these are the implications of God's deep love for us. Because we can talk about the love of God for us, but a lot of times we doubt it when we suffer. And we experience pain. And so I want us to see in this passage, this is exactly the context of which Paul writes this very famous verse so many of us love to quote, which is verse 28, which we'll get to in a moment. But verse 28 is not in the context of everything's going really well. Verse 28 is written in the context of deep pain and suffering in this world, which reminds us just because we follow Jesus doesn't mean we will escape that. So Paul gives us these words to help encourage us and to remind us that pain and difficulty and suffering that we experience in this world is not a reflection at all that God has stopped loving us. The exact opposite is the case. So if you're looking at your notes in your bulletin, I want to mention two implications of God's deep love for us as sinners. Two implications of that, those bookends that we saw at the beginning and the end of chapter eight of, chapter eight of Romans. Here's the first implication that God truly loves us in our suffering. God allows the Spirit to speak for us. God allows the Spirit to speak 
for us. With the ministry I get to do now with, with Practical Shepherd, I get to travel all over the world. And I've preached in several places where I had to use a translator. So I was in Brazil last year and had a, had a Portuguese translator uh, to when I was preaching at that conference. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this or maybe seen this happen or even used a translator before. But when you're preaching like this and you have somebody standing next to you translating for you, it's something you got to get used to. You know, it's like you, you preach something and then there's just like no reaction whatsoever until this person translates for you say, oh, and then they respond. It's almost like you're preaching in a delay all the time. And you can get in a rhythm with the translator, which is, which is helpful when that happens. But I have found it difficult to preach with a translator because it's hard to get used to that give and take. But they can't understand what I'm saying until he says what I just said. God has actually provided a translator for our deepest pain and groanings in our life. And it's the Holy Spirit. This is what we see here in this verse. He gives a paradigm for the Christian life, Paul here, in Romans chapter 8. And it's the Holy Spirit that acts as that translator. And let's face it, when we experience pain and suffering in this world, even when we have people around us who love us and try to care for us, most of the time, we cannot understand what the other one's going through. We can try to empathize, and sometimes that we're able to do that, but oftentimes in our suffering, we feel very alone. And even when we don't have the words to express the pain, what Paul is reminding us of here, out of his great love for us, is that God hears us. He hears us in our pain. Notice first with me, he, he hears our groanings. That's verse 26. So look there with me. Even when most people can't understand those groanings of pain, those groans of pain. Verse 26, in the same way the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. I know we're told, stop groaning. Groanings are bad. We shouldn't groan. Now, by the way, I'm not at all advocating for just endless complaining about whatever. That's not what we're talking about here. What Paul's referencing here is that the suffering and the pain is so great that we can experience as human beings in this fallen world that sometimes there's no words to express the pain. And sometimes the only thing that comes out is groanings. You ever experienced pain so deep that there were no words for it? And in your own way, all we do is just all we can do is just groan out of the pain. Well, God hears our groanings because the spirit who dwells in us is this perfect translator of our groanings to the Father who hears and perfectly understands. Even when we can't pray, we don't have the, the words to express it. And he welcomes and hears our groanings out of his love for us. But notice also he knows our hearts. That's, that's the next verse of verse 27. Look there with me. Verse 27, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the, to the will of God. So God, he knows us. He sees our hearts. He hears the Spirit groaning for us. And this undeniable message here for those who are in Christ is that you are so loved that God hears us. Even in our worst moments, even in our deepest pain. Let me personalize this a moment for you. God hears you. Have you ever prayed and 
really questioned, is God hearing me at all? Especially when we go through pain and suffering, we can be tempted to think, God is not there. He's not hearing me. And yet Paul is reminding us the Spirit intervenes in our life and translates perfectly our groanings to the Lord. And these are groanings in our life, and they could come from all kinds of things, even groans of, of sin in our life. We try to cry out to him over groanings from injustice that's maybe done to you, harm that's been brought to you, that's brought suffering in your life. God knows your pain, and he hears you, and he welcomes those groanings. That's why in verse chapter 8, verse 15, this is significant in this context too, he says we can cry out to God, our Father, as Abba, Father. This personalized Heavenly Father that we can go to and cry out to him in wherever place that we are. So let me ask you a question this morning. What groanings lie deep in your soul that are too difficult to express with words? Sounds like there's a lot of different suffering, whether it's the loss of a loved one or physical struggles or marriage or family issues, whatever it might be. This congregation is not exempt from suffering, clearly. What are those sufferings for you? You know those groanings that are so scary to maybe make out loud because you have no idea what people are going to do with them if you actually articulate them? Well, God hears, and he wants you to cry out to him. Paul tells us here God loves us in such a way that we can bring our groanings to him through our mediator, Jesus, and then the Spirit is the one that interprets those groanings. There was a Sunday school lesson on the Trinity this morning. Don't miss the presence of the Trinity here. And the way the Father and the Son and the Spirit are at work, caring and loving us. Remember this chapter opens, there's no condemnation for those in Christ, and nothing separates us from the love of Christ. And God shows his love to us in hearing our groanings. So cry out to him today. And whatever your pain and difficulty is, you are undeniably loved and you can go to him in any of these moments and be loved by him. That's the first implication. The second is this, that God works all things for our good. God works all things for our good. That is an implication of God's love for us in Christ. Only the deep love of God could give such a Hope-filled promise. Look at verse 28. Let's read this together. Verse 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. I think we would all agree. There's so many things we could say about this verse and this wonderful promise, but I want to highlight two words for you that I think are particularly important. Look down at verse 28. It is the two words, all things. All things. Imagine the implications of God promising that he will work all things for our good. I don't know about you, when I make a promise, I want a little wiggle room that I can't deliver. So, most things I would have said, you know, just to give me some room in case I can't deliver on any of these things. Why would God take such a risk to say all things, every single thing in your life I will work for your good as an extension of my love for you. 
And I can't promise this to anybody. No, you can't promise this. It's only God. Only a God who rules over the universe and so deeply loves sinners can actually make a promise like that. And it's really important for us to see how much this promise is staked on the character of God. Because God could love us more than we can imagine. But if he does not control the universe, he cannot make a promise like this. And likewise, he can make a promise like this because he rules over the universe. But why would he do it unless he loves those he would do that for? So God's promise here is banked on him being sovereign over all things in our lives, in the world, and yet loving us more deeply than we can imagine. And remember the context of this verse is that things are not going well in a sense that there's a lot of pain and suffering in the world. And yet, it is all things that God promises to us in verse 28. That one thing in your life, you're sitting here right now tempted to think, yeah, that's the exception. No, no, that too. You just may not know how it's going to work for your good. And I know most of us want to know right in the moment, how's this going to work for my good? We rarely know how that's going to work. But God, in some way, whether we will know it or not, he uses everything for our good. That's, that's the promise. And that's why that is such a precious promise to those of us who are in this fallen world and suffer and experience pain. So deep, oftentimes, that we groan because we don't have the words. But this promise is not for everybody. There's two qualifications, you notice in the verse, of who this precious promise is given to. Notice the first qualification is those, verse 28, those who love God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. I remember having a conversation with a, a, a non-Christian friend of mine, and we were talking, and he, you know, he comes to me. Uh, interesting non-Christian friends will come to their friend who's a pastor when they get desperate enough to want to talk about whatever's going on. And he came to me, and we were chatting about what was going on, and all of a sudden he, he says to me, well, but I, I know that I know everything's going to work out for my good. I know it says it somewhere. It's going to work out for my good. Now, it's a bit of a quandary. That's kind of probably not the time to have a theological conversation, discussion and debate with him. But later to follow up with him, to remind him, hey, uh, this promise actually isn't for you, at least yet. This is a promise to those who love God, those who are in Christ. And there's a second qualification of this too. It's also... Not just those who love God, but those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 28, the, uh, work all things together for the good of those who lo- love God, who are called according to his, his purpose. And it's important to know that Romans 8 is talking about the same people. All the things I mentioned earlier that this chapter just goes through and says, you are this, and you are this, and you're this. If you are in Christ, you're all these things. And that includes those who are called according to to his purpose. It's a particular person who loves God, who's been called according to that particular purpose. Well, what's the purpose? We see it in the next two verses. Look at verses 29 and 30 with me. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Those who love God 
and are called according to his purpose are clearly, deeply, uniquely, and specifically loved by God. Proven in this purpose. This, is, this glorious progression that we see in these two verses leads to this ultimate eternal purpose that God has for each one of us that he will make sure finishes to the end. I mean, look at verses 28 or 29 and 30 with me again. Like he foreknew, look at this plan. He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified. And all of that is secured by the blood of Christ. And it's ours through faith in him. God has an unshakable plan and it's driven by an unchangeable love that cannot be thwarted. And that is why for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, he will deliver every time on the all things of this promise. So friends, take a moment and think about your own life. The things that you're going through or you have gone through, even things that you have, decisions you've made that has maybe wrecked your life. And you're thinking, there's no way he can do something good with that. But you're wrong. The promise says it's all things. And to believe that in faith and to watch and wait to see what God does. I I know this in particular because I want you to know throughout my life, I've done my share of groanings. I was a pastor for 25 years, spent eight years doing associate pastor work, and, and then I, as Pastor Ryan mentioned, I went to Auburndale Baptist Church and was there for 17 years as the pastor there. And I went there, it was a, a, a dying church, a church about to close, and I was told it was going to be a rough place, but I didn't know exactly how rough a place it was going to be. So to give you a quick summary of my first five years as pastor of this church, There were three different movements to get me fired. There were threats of violence against me as the pastor. There were people going around the community slandering my name, and some of them were on the pastoral committee that actually had hired me. And then the church ran out of money, and my full-time sole income came through the church. And at the end of those five years and those three firing attempts, at the ripe age of 34 years old, I started to have health issues that showed there was a physical, emotional, mental breakdown that was taking place in my early 30s that docs eventually brought back to all the things that we had gone through in those first five years at the church that was causing my health to tank. And I want you to know, in my darkest moments, in my ministry there, In my darkest moments, sometimes I didn't have words to express what I felt and what I was going through. And all I could do is groan. And I didn't know what else to do in those darkest moments. But when I was in the middle of those those first five years, I had no idea why I was suffering. But there were two precious promises that I clung to, with just sometimes an ember of faith, And there were the two promises that we look at and see in this passage this morning. And that was that God hears my groans of pain. He's not ignoring them. He hears them. He knows. And the second promise is that he works all things for our good. 
And I asked all the questions you would imagine I would ask in that moment. I mean, what was I doing wrong? I asked that question a lot. Is, is God punishing me for, I mean, I'm trying to go and serve in the ministry and, and serve him the best I can. Is he punishing me? And I got no answers in that moment. But I did cling to those promises, hoping that God was hearing me and that he would somehow use these years for my good. In the midst of those, that's the struggle of those five years, something else was happening that I did not see or know. There were two things happening that I did not realize. Number one, in those five years, God was building his church in a way that I, I wasn't aware of. And the second thing God was doing in those five years is he was preparing in me to do a future ministry. And he was taking me through what he was taking me through so that I would be equipped to do that ministry. So in those early years, there were some, some young guys that came to the church and felt a call into pastoral ministry. And as a pastor of a local church, I felt obligated to, to want to help them and, and mentor them and, and take them along with me to teach them how to do ministry. So I started taking them with me, you know, doing pastoral work. So going to the hospitals and funeral homes and the, the widows' homes. And by the way, there's a little bit of a selfish intent with this. I thought, okay, I'm going through this. I'll just want, I'll bring some company with me. That would help a little bit. The second thing I was doing is these guys said, I want to be a pastor. I'm like, oh, you want to be a pastor? Come on. I'll show you what it's like to be a pastor. And they got quite a crash course in those early years of what it was like to be a pastor of a church. But what started happening is I was training these guys for ministry and how to do ministry in the local church. And a few resources developed out of that. And that's what eventually became the ministry of practical shepherding out of just training those young guys in our church. And then it started to expand and and grow. So in the middle of the mess of this church situation, that that almost really ruined me as as a human being, practical shepherding was birthed out of that. And in year six of the church, after those five years, the ship just turned and the church began to flourish from that day on. For the next 10 years, we saw a flourishing in the church that I couldn't imagine. We saw conversions to Christ and people baptized in the community. We saw people, church members come from all over. We had no idea where they were coming from. And some of them became my first elders when we eventually moved to elders in our church. And God sent them in, in, that, next, in that next year. But here's another thing that God did. Most of the people who were trying to get me fired in the first five years, they stayed at the church. In the next five years, God completely redeemed our relationships together. To where when I left after 17 years of being the pastor there, they were the hardest people to say goodbye to because we had grown to love each other so deeply. Let me give one example to you so you can understand what I'm talking about. There was an old widow, her name was Betty. She's in her mid-90s now, still, still alive. And Betty would sit on the front, the second pew in the front and for the service. And when the service was over, our routine was she would go to the back of the church to where I would be standing, greeting people as they would leave. And she'd come do two things. She would come tell me that she hated my preaching and why. <laughs> Which was kind of refreshing if you think about it because she came to me to tell me that she hated my preaching and then told me why to help me, you know, try to grow. And I want you to know I did what every wise 29-year-old pastor would do in that moment. I dismissed everything. She's, I mean, she's an 80-year-old widow. What does she know about preaching? I thought to myself. 
So I dismissed everything that she would say, and this was the routine literally every Sunday for the first two or three years of the church. For the next eight years or so, I, I really, I knew I was young, I needed to grow as a preacher, and so I, I worked hard to try to grow as a preacher and did all kinds of different things. And it took about eight years, and I finally figured out my preaching voice, is the way a lot of people talk about it. The who are you in the pulpit and, and how you need to preach God's word as far as how God has gifted you. It took about eight years, and when that happened, the fruit of the preaching of the word in the church really started to show fruit and evidence. And it was an encouraging time. And all of a sudden, at some point, it dawned on me that I had changed in those eight years exactly what that woman told me to change in those early years about my preaching. Which, by the way, Betty loves it anytime she hears I tell that story anywhere. <laughs> I used to go back to church and she'd be like, you tell our story. I was like, everybody knows, Betty. Everybody knows. And she suffered more than just about anybody I knew. She buried her husband. She buried three of her four children. She had knee and hip replacement surgery in her 90s, my last year at the church. But our routine changed pretty significantly in the last years of the church. I had become her pastor, and we had developed a really close relationship. And I got to walk through a lot of that suffering with her in her life. And the routine was now, she came to the back like she always did, but it was a very different exchange. She'd come to the back, she usually had tears in her eyes, and she would say to me how the word of God was helpful to her, specifically in her suffering. And then she would give me a really big, tight hug every week. She'd give me a really big, tight hug, and she'd whisper in my ear, I think that's the best sermon you've ever preached, (laughs) which we all know is a big, fat lie. (laughs) But I know exactly what she was trying to say to me. And she became one of the dearest women in my life. Did God use those first five years for my good? Friends, more than I could imagine. In fact, I would tell you that God didn't make the best of that situation. That situation that there's no way I could have imagined how he'd use it. God not only used that for my good. I believe those five years were ordained for me to shape me as a man and as a pastor, to shape our church, to bring our church through the things we needed to go through to be able to to then flourish in the years to come? Did God use those five years for my good? In a way I couldn't imagine. And I want you to know, even though you don't know how God will use your suffering and pain for your good, the promise is true. All things will be used for your good. And I want you to also think about your own life and, and realize, I think a lot of you already know this though, don't you? Because it is oftentimes the deepest sufferings that we go through in our life, the most painful things that God then uses to empower us to care for others best. Do you know why I'm able, we, we serve now about two or 3,000 pastors a year all over the world as a ministry. This is what I do full-time now. And as I care for pastors, there's not a pastor I meet who's got some crazy story that I can't look at him and go, yep, I, I know what you mean. Been there and done that. I had no idea God was using those years to shape and prepare me to actually be a credible voice in the ministry he was preparing for me 10, 15, 20 years later. 
God loves us deeply, but remember, he's sovereign over the universe and over our lives, and that is how he's able to promise things like that. And you are not the exception. The thing you think God will not use for your good, he indeed will. You just have to be patient to wait. And you may not know what that is until we get to be with Jesus forever, and then you know. But the promise is sound. And the suffering you go through, be mindful that it may be the very thing that God uses to empower you to care for others in your own ministry, in this church, and in your life, and at your workplace, and in your home. But God promises to use all things for our good. Out of his great love for us, he will hear your groans, and he will work everything for your good. So let me take a moment and pray for you that God would give you the faith to believe that today in the midst of your pain and suffering and uncertainty of your life. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we are undeniably loved by you. And so many times we try to deny it. We try to dismiss it. We try to convince ourselves that we're not loved. The enemy loves to swoop in and tell us we're not loved. But Lord, help us to see the truth. That we are loved more than we realize. More than we can imagine. And it is evidenced all around us. Lord, thank you for the way you've used so much of our pain for our good and that we, you've given us the grace to see what that is in our life. But Lord, the places that are still really painful and we have no idea how you're working in them, Lord, we ask that you would give us faith to believe, patience to wait, and an ability and willingness to receive your love in the meantime. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.